Good morning. Um, scripture reading for today is from Exodus uh, 16, verses 1 through 8, and 17, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the text is also printed in your bulletin on page 4, if you'd like to read along. Uh, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are not there to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. The whole Israelite community set out, of, set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Redifim, uh, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? All right, let's pray together. God, we ask that you would be present in this time, in your word, and that you would use my limited expressions, words, uh, what I have planned here to say, but I offer it to you to ask you uh, to do your will through it. And in my weakness, that you would be strong. And that you'd be strong for the sake of all of us, that we'd hear from you, that we'd hear the good news of your grace, that we would see more of Jesus, see more of our sin, that you would change our lives. Pray that you would do that. We know you have the power to. You've given us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We are now in what's often called the season of Lent. And you say, that's great. What is it? 
Well, Lent is actually uh, part of the traditional historic church calendar, where the church has set aside 40 days, not including Sundays, leading up to Easter, starting with Ash Wednesday, which was last Wednesday, and set it aside as a time for self-examination, a season devoted to turning away from areas of sin and self-centeredness in our lives and turning towards God, specifically His Son, Jesus. This turning away from and turning to what the Bible calls repentance. And uh, the whole idea really is a preparation time leading up to the great celebration of Good Friday and Easter, which is when the church likes to focus upon specifically the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the idea. Jesus' death won't mean a lot to us unless we know what he had to die for. Namely, our sins and the brokenness, not only in my heart, but also in this world. Jesus' death won't have life-changing power unless I know not just that he died, but he died for me, personally. And there the power ushers in. Or put another way, there's really no good news unless first we consider the bad news out of which Jesus came to rescue us. And so you see this whole idea of pondering sin and self-centeredness and doing that in light of our coming focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's relevant to all of us. God willing, it'll be beneficial to all of us if you're investigating Jesus, just exploring the person of who he is and the claims that he's made. Do you realize that Jesus will really make no sense to you if you go on believing that you're basically a good person that just makes mistakes once in a while, rather than considering what the Bible says about sin? Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus. Do you realize that you, have, you will have no joy and you will have no power to grow spiritually if you are not seeing with ever-increasing clarity how huge a sinner you really are and therefore, if Jesus is your Savior, how massive a Savior He is for you. And how great is his love for a weak, broken, sinful person like me, like you. So, we won't be formally observing Lent as a church, but we would like to capture the heart of this Lenten season in a new sermon series focusing on sin. Woohoo! <laughs> Next couple of weeks. Focusing on sin. And as I was thinking about what to entitle this service, uh, this uh, series, considered a few different titles. Defensible sins. Acceptable sins. Subtle sins. Tolerable sins. Excusable sins. Trying to capture the, the different ways in which we not only fail to love God and love other people, namely sin but also the different ways and the different failures which are most easy for us to neglect, set aside, or justify. 
ways in which we sin, ways in which we engage in self-love that in fact are not defensible, acceptable, or excusable, but we think they are because they're easy to overlook, easy to rationalize in daily life. Come on, it's really not that bad. Or come on, you know, who isn't like this? I'm not the only one. Or come on, what, you've never had a bad day? God, you've never had a bad day? Or come on, have you seen what that other guy did? At least I'm not doing that. Or at least I'm not like her. I'm talking about things like selfish ambition, religious pride, a lack of self-control, ethnocentrism, anxiety, people-pleasing fear, greed, biting words, impatience, apathy towards injustice, self-righteousness, resentment, slander, irritability, materialism, self-pity, envy. You squirming in your seats? I am. (laughs) Not a happy list. But so easy to take each of these things and skip right on by them, to forego them and rather look at a fairly narrow list of what you might see as neon sins, the stuff the other people do, and say, therefore, I'm doing okay. And looky here, Jesus makes no sense then, and you got no joy, and you got no power to change. You see what we shortchange ourselves from, what we rob ourselves of when we don't examine these excusable sins. Don't worry, we're not going to hit all of those. We only have a couple weeks to go through that. But for today, we're going to start here. We're going to look at ingratitude and grumbling. Two sides of the same coin. Do you realize, friends... That the Bible talks about the refusal to thank God as one of the most fundamental components of our fallen nature and our sinfulness. When the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, the first chapter, is thinking through and explaining what is essentially wrong with us as people, what answer would you give to that question? What is essentially wrong with us He describes the human race as a people who, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or what? Give thanks to Him. And it stands to reason, friends, because what? Sin is essentially trying to build a life wholly apart from God. Sin, in fact, is trying to play God in our own lives, in our own relationships, taking His place, assuming the prerogatives that belong to God alone. And so to refuse to thank God is really to say no thanks to Him. Conversely, to give thanks to God is one of the greatest and most basic acts of humility and love to God. Thank you, God. I can't live without you. Thank you, God. Everything I am and everything I have is to your credit, is because of your generosity, because of your blessing. Every breath that I breathe, every talent that I have, everything that I do is only possible, God, because of you and your kindness, your generosity, to your praise. Do you see how this works? It's so fundamental 
to a right relationship with God, and yet we forget it, we neglect it, we don't deal with it, and yet we think we're okay. The flip side of ingratitude, of course, is grumbling. Not just not giving thanks, but grumbling about our circumstances, our lives, and the people of Israel, as we see them in this passage, are just Hall of Fame grumblers. Several times, multiple times in this passage, chapter 16 and chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, and throughout the Old Testament, we see this word used to describe the state of their hearts. Chapter 16, verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Verse 7, he has heard your grumbling. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Verse 8, he has heard your grumbling against him. Later in that verse, you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 3, they grumbled against Moses. And why were they grumbling? Well, God had taken them out of Egypt and has them now wandering in the wilderness. They're away from civilization. They're away from their resources, from comfortable living. In chapter 16, they're in the desert of sin. And here they are hungry. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And in chapter 17, in Rephidim, they're grumbling because they are thirsty. Okay, so maybe you haven't gotten angry about an empty stomach or in a thirsty mouth lately, or maybe you have. But what does that grumbling character and spirit look like in your life? Maybe you're always complaining about things, complaining. Maybe you're critical of others, something I struggle with. Maybe you're always seeing what's wrong with a person and for some reason you always feel like you have the right to tell them that. Maybe you tend to dwell on what's bad or wrong or limited or what isn't rather than what is. Maybe you do all of this in a way where you're not really looking for resolution or redemption. There's just no hope. It's just this despairing thud at the end of your complaint. Discontentment in our hearts. And maybe it's not this loud and angry grumble. Maybe it's just quietly dreaming about a better life or better circumstances. Or you just have it in your heart that I just wish it were a different sort of uh, roommate that I have or child that I have. Or maybe friends or different friends or more friends or a different job or more jobs or whatever it might be. We live with this frustration, we're upset, we're angry at whatever or whoever is blocking our plans. Sometimes it's not even words that we use, it's just the roll of our eyes. It's body language, maybe the shaking of your head at situations. you just walking down the street, just... Sometimes I, I, literally, I really find myself doing that sometimes. I'm walking down 14th Street and I'm just... Well, what is that? I'll tell you what that is, it's my ugly heart. That's what it is. Beyond my control almost. Sighs and grunts. The other day I'm at my computer and Paul is there in the same room. And at one point she turns to me and she's like, what is going on over there? And I realize I just kept on... <clears throat> these little things. Grumbling. 
And the reason why it feels so defensible, so excusable for us to live this way is not only because we're so used to it, it's a habit, it's a pattern, we don't even notice it in our lives, but also because, friends, look, we do live in a fallen world. There is a lot to be frustrated over, a lot to sigh about, a lot to groan about. There is a lot of brokenness in my life, in your life, in the world around us. Broken relationships, broken metro escalators, broken bodies, the pain that you're going through, broken dreams. Has something happened, friend, or not happened in your life? That has become a constant source of quiet or maybe not so quiet grumbling for you. I mean, pay attention to it this week, this coming week. Observe your life, your heart, your thoughts, your desires, your head shaking, (laughs) your grunts, your sighs, and see what you come up with and see what you see. In our time remaining, I just want to look at how this passage here, using Israel as a portrait of grumbling, teaches us about this area of excusable sin. First of all, looking at a portrait of grumbling, what it looks like. And second, the healing of grumbling, how we can grow in it. So first, a portrait of grumbling. Just want to give you four quick things that we see. Number one, grumbling blinds us from the good in our lives. Grumbling blinds us from the good that is, in fact, in our lives. We see this in Israel, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim. The story right before this passage here is a story of God's incredible provision of water, of refreshment, of care to this same community that just before that had engaged in what? Grumbling and accusation and complaining before God. God had met their need. He had cared for them. And yet here they are with every reason in the world to believe that God will care for them again. Good and blessing in their lives, and yet, grumbling again. The passage makes very clear and intentional reference to the fact that they had just been brought out of Egypt. We're told, verse 1, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. You may or may not know the story, but God had delivered Israel through the leadership of Moses, taking them out of generations of slavery, families, children, livestock, all in bondage under the tyrannical hand and power of Pharaoh. Delivered, set free, now in relationship with the God who made them and has called them my people. Of all the people in the world, I will love you with a special kind of love, God has told them. And he did this just about, well, several weeks ago. Just several weeks ago. God brought them out. The Israelites were dancing on the beach singing God's praises, and hear them now, verse 3, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, 
There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out of, uh, you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Their perspective had become so twisted that they begin to talk about Egypt as if those were the good old days. And they were slaves in Egypt. Friends, the ways in which our grumbling can make us blind even to the rich blessings that really are there. Have you experienced this? I have. Where you can become so consumed in what really might be nothing more than a pity party. Sometimes it's more than that. But we can be so focused in on and obsessed with a thing that ain't that we can't see the things that are where we are so filled with what we believe to be the absence of God in this trial or in this area of trouble that we fail to see the very real presence of God in our lives. The little blessings or maybe even His redemption. Maybe some of you are facing struggles in your life precisely because you are a follower of Jesus and you're striving with all your might, with faith, with humility to follow God. And it's hard. And you're saying to yourself, I'm tired of this. It was better in Egypt. Friends, it wasn't. And it's not. Which brings us to the second observation, the way in which grumbling exaggerates the bad in our lives. Where we can get so clouded with our crankiness that even the bad starts to look even worse than it really is. Yes, it was rough in the wilderness, short on food and short on drink. Barren, desolate, a desert climate. Please don't misunderstand. God invites us to bring our true troubles to Him. He does invite us to bring the cries of our hearts and even our frustrations before Him. And He will meet us in those places. But here we have Israel not actually going to God with their problems but rather shaking their problems before him, before Moses. And what you have then instead is this dynamic where the situation starts to seem worse and starts to be talked about as worse than it actually is. You see, what we have here in verse 3 is this fact. you got people here complaining that, Moses, you have brought us out into this desert to starve us. We're going to die. We have no food. And just a verse later, or the next chapter over, we're told that they're looking for water for their livestock. That they have access to milk and dairy products. They have access to meat if they want to slaughter those livestock and eat them. They're not actually running out of food. In fact, Psalm 78, in reflecting upon this passage, tells us that they were grumbling because they wanted the food that they craved. Not the food that they needed for life. They wanted something that tasted better or that filled them up a little bit more. You see, isn't that so like us too? The way in which we grumble because we've confused what we need with what we want. 
And the way in which so much of the crankiness of our hearts is driven by this. Wrapped up in that then, the bad in our lives looks even worse. We're starving. We're starving. You're not starving. Sometimes you are. Friends, I'm not saying that it doesn't get that bad sometimes. But when we let the eyes of our hearts become so filled with everything that's bad and wrong and we dwell upon it and live in it, it in fact makes things worse, makes you feel worse, and it makes you deeper in despair. We start to talk in absolutes and superlatives that aren't even accurate to the situation. This is the worst ever. Or this is the most ever. I will never. Or this is always the way it is. When that's just not accurate. But we do that. Grumbling exaggerates the bad in our life. Thirdly, grumbling blames and accuses. When we get with our complaining hearts... You know, we oftentimes say, well, what's the big deal about grumbling? What's the big deal about not being grateful, thankful? It's just me. It doesn't really affect other people. It does, friends. You see this in Israel. The way in which grumbling, when it intensifies, always expresses itself in blame shifting and accusation, looking for someone else who's responsible for what's going on in my life. Do you do that? This is one of the chief areas that God is working on in me and my marriage. <laughs> in which I'm so quick to blame the first person that's right in front of me who happens to be Paula, right? Pray for her to persevere under my growth and help in this area. The way in which we're so quick to take things out on other people. Chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled, what? Against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3. Now Moses, we know you're doing your best. No, no, no. Moses, you have brought us out to this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Chapter 17, verse 2. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. In fact, what we have in this passage is evidence that Israel is so riled up here and so eager to find somebody to blame, they are actually filing a literal lawsuit before God, before Moses. In verse 2 of chapter 17, you see this word that the people of Israel quarreled with Moses. The word behind that is actually a technical word that means to bring a covenant lawsuit. That's why in verse 4, Moses, when he cries out to God, he says, look, they're almost ready to stone me. Stoning being the typical way of carrying out the death penalty. You see, you only move to stone once you've concluded a trial. It's the sentence of the trial. They're coming after Moses. They've already built the courtroom right around him. And isn't this what we do? Complaining, angry, frustrated, critical. Friends, uh, it's just been hitting me recently how this city, this town, is so weak in the area of having a critical spirit. There's something about the nature of the work that happens here and the people that is drawn, including people like me, right, where we are analytical, we are problem solvers, and so a lot of you are hired to tell the world what's wrong with the world. 
And then you bring that at home, and you're telling your roommate what's wrong with your roommate, and you're telling your spouse and your children, and you're looking at people on the street, and you're only seeing what's wrong with them, and you're only looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself what's wrong with you and your life. Before you know it, you've been swallowed up by a grumbling spirit. Grumbling blames and accuses. This is where it starts to spill over into other people's lives. I'm susceptible susceptible to it, and so maybe are you. Fourthly, lastly, grumbling is always and always and always against God. You might not think about it as being against God. Hey, I'm just I'm just being cranky. It's just me and my crank. I'm just, you know, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not saying this to anyone. I'm not looking at God. I'm just I'm just being ornery today. Just leave me in my grumbling orneriness. Okay? I'm just frustrated. Can't I just be frustrated? Grumbling is always against God. Moses and Aaron, rather than defense, getting defensive, they help the people see this. In the middle of verse 7 in chapter 16, they say again and again, who are we that you should grumble against us? Look, who are we? Meaning, we, we don't have enough power to really control your lives and your circumstances here. We don't have power to change the climate of this wilderness. And you're looking at us? I know someone who does have power, but we don't. Who are we to fill your stomach? We can't do that. I know someone that does, but you're looking at us. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, end of verse 8, but against the Lord. You're not grumbling against us. You're not grumbling against me. You're not, in fact, grumbling against your neighbor. You're not, in fact, grumbling against the person sitting in the bus next to you. You're not, in fact, grumbling about your roommate, about your spouse, about your friend, about your parents, about your child, about your name that person. Your grumbling is against the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 2, why do you put the Lord to the test? Look, if I were to go to your home and you were to graciously and hospitably invite me in and to say, look, this is your home, have at it. And you even invite me to sleep over, I don't know why, whatever the occasion, I'm at your home now, I'm your guest. And if I were throughout the course of the day to walk to your home and be, it's too hot in here, man. It's too hot. I start thumbling through your fridge. I eat some of your food. Later on, I'm like, oh, your food gave, the food gave me a stomachache. I don't know whose food that is. The stomach's killing me right now. Sit down on the couch. Start flipping through the TV. No cable. <laughs> whose TV is this? TV. Take a nap in the bed. It's not quite the right bed for me. My back is hurting me. And these walls, man, the paint colors are just giving me a headache. You're going to be offended. (laughs) You're going to not want me to come back to your home. And you're probably right. You shouldn't want me, if I'm like that, to be back in your home. I won't be like that love to be in your home. I'm just making this up. Not how I'll be. But friends, look. 
whether we know our host by name or not. Every one of us are house guests in God's world. And so when we grumble about this or that, about the circumstances in my life, and we say, look, I'm just frustrated. I'm just a little bit ornery. I'm just a little bit cranky. I'm just complaining in general here. Or I'm complaining about that person over there. This has nothing to do with God here. I'm not saying anything personable about God, but dear friends, it's God's thermostat. It's His fridge. He made the food. He made the bed. He invited you in. It's God's house. You're His house guest. Your grumbling, my grumbling, is always against Him. Do you see this? Oh, this excusable, defensible, acceptable thing in our hearts that we call grumbling. Could it ever be that it's much more heinous than we ever dared thought? And so we need healing and we need help. Let's look at this quickly. First of all, notice, friends, just the amazing kindness of God. What does he do? He's looking at these Israelites who are shaking their fists, not only at his appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, but now ultimately at God. We've identified that too. He gives them what they ask for. Who's a God like this? I'm not like that. What would you have done? I'm giving you no drink. Giving you food? What are you talking about? Here is God that says, for all their grumbling and anger and thanklessness and complaining, even after I delivered them from Egypt, have a drink. Have a bite to eat. And see my glory, the glory of my kindness, the glory of my generosity, the glory of my outpouring of my heart at great cost to myself. See my glory, he says, when you see this bread from heaven. Oh, friends, would not a little bit of a glimpse of the generous, kind heart of God start to melt our grumbling? Why? We grumble because we're afraid. We don't think God's going to meet our needs. We grumble because we doubt We believe He's going to break His promises. We grumble because we think we're alone. We don't think God's going to show up. As the Israelites said, we see this in the very last verse of that chapter, 17. Is the Lord with us or not? Is He among us or not? This is the fundamental question. This is why we grumble. We think we're alone. But oh, if we would start to see the provision and the kindness and the generosity of the heart of God. Would it not start to quiet a lit a bit of our complaining heart? Are you seeing this? Are you starting to see this of God? But even more than that, more than seeing His grace and His provision, do you see the provision of His Son? I mentioned earlier that Israel was bringing Moses essentially on trial calling him guilty for, well, not only homicide, but maybe even genocide. You've led us out to this desert to wipe us all out, haven't you? It would have been better for us to be full and slaves in Egypt, for us to be hungry and to die out here. 
We're putting you on trial, Moses. Moses says, they're ready to stone me. He cries out to God. And look at how God responds in chapter 7, verse 5 and following. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Understand, the elders of Israel would have functioned as a grand jury in a trial. God continues, and take in your hand the staff. Now today, that'd be something like take in your hand the gavel. A judge held a staff. It was an instrument for punishment. The staff, God says, with which you struck the Nile, the ten plagues in Egypt, which was part of God's deliverance of the people from Pharaoh. Striking the Nile was an act, a symbolic act of God's judgment with this staff, this rod, with the authority of God, his judgment upon Egypt. Striking the rock, therefore, was also going to be an act of divine judgment. In verse 6, I will stand there before you, God says, I will stand there before you by the rock, or literally on the rock of Horeb. This language of standing before is language of being evaluated by or judged by someone. It's the language of standing as a defendant in a courtroom. Who's standing before whom here? God is in the dock. God has placed himself as the defendant in this trial. He has summoned before around him a courtroom And he has said here to Moses before all the people, gather around me this grand jury. And knowing that I am standing on this rock, fully identifying myself with that rock, take your staff of divine judgment and strike the rock. Because who should be standing now in the defendant's stand? Who should it be that is standing before the judge of the world, God himself? Who is it that should be on the receiving end of this judge's staff of judgment? Should it not be the grumblers of Israel? Should it not be the grumblers, you and me? Who filled with ingratitude, not only forget God, but refuse to thank him who with our grumbling hearts not only accuse and blame other people, not only play up the bad and forget the good with utter blindness, but bring all of our grumblings as accusations to God whose house and whose life we live in. It should have been us. It should have been Israel. And here is God submitting to his own staff of judgment, the blow of his own judgment. God the rock taking the hit for you and me. In 1 Corinthians 10, when the Apostle Paul reflects upon this very passage, he says to us, that rock was Christ. The one who was God himself, who lived a life of utter wilderness living. 
Not a whole lot to eat and drink. More than that, a life of frustration and hardship. Nowhere to lay his head. Abandoned by his friends. Hated by authorities. Bearing the burdens of the fallenness of the world around him. Loving perfectly even still. Never grumbling sinfully. Not one bit. The only person that ever lived this life in this broken world without a single grumble in his heart. And yet he stands in the place of grumblers, in the courtroom of heaven, on the cross, suffering the hell and judgment that grumblers like you and me deserve, taking the staff of God's judgment upon himself so that waters of blessing might quench the spiritual thirst of grumblers like you and me. That rock was Christ. That rock is Christ. And though this picture of the good news of the gospel that God would receive in himself the punishment that we deserve so that the abundance of his blessing and life and forgiveness and righteousness and status and glory and affection and meaning and significance and hope and a future and everything we ever longed for that because it's frustrated in our life, we grumble that we would know we get all that and more in him and more because we get God, the greatest blessing of all, perfected eternal communion and relationship with the God of the universe who has wired our souls to click in with Him. It's where we find our greatest sense of wholeness and meaning. It's what we were made for. And God said, strike the rock that I might have them. Strike the rock so that I might pour out my blessing upon them, quench their thirst, that they may grumble no more. Are you starting to taste it? Are you starting to experience it? It doesn't take away the frustrations and the fallenness and the brokenness of this life, but it does give you a different source of life, doesn't it? And it just starts to quiet just a little bit, a little bit more, day by day, the crankiness of our hearts, the complaints, the criticism, the anger, the head shaking, the sighs. What is it in your life? What is God trying to address? What's that defensible, protected area, that pocket in your heart that you don't want to bring before Him and cry out and say, I need you here? If you do that, though, He'll meet you there. The rock will crack open and pour in water. Refreshment. Life into your life. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for your kindness, your mercy. We need you. What we really need is to see you for who you are, that we would give you thanks and glorify your name and glorify your name again and to say you deserve all honor and all praises for who you are. God, help us to see you and help us to look at life differently because we see you. Do that in our midst, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.